This morning we continue in our Lenten series, The God We Can Know, and and we are in the part of our series right now where we are looking at the I Am statements of Jesus. And we'll see in our passage this morning, it's really just one verse, Uh, in in John chapter 8, we will see that Jesus is is using uh, at that time uh, a something that was that was practiced uh, one of the festivals that the people of God um, were were called by God to to remember uh, called by God to continue to participate in year after year so that they don't forget who they are so that they don't forget who God is and it was also a way for them to look forward in in anticipation and expectation so God um, used uh, this this customary observance of, of the people um, or Jesus used that to teach them something, not just something, but to reveal to them who He is and who He came to be. And, th- and that's our prayer for, through this series of Lent. You know, Lent is often in the, in the church a time of reflection, a time in which we uh, are willing to examine our hearts. Sometimes we, we give things up in the season of Lent so that we can in some maybe even small way connect to what Jesus is willing to give up, what Jesus is willing to, uh, to suffer on our behalf. Uh, and it, it's a, a chance for us to examine our hearts. And we talked the first week about being willing to, to travel or to journey into the wilderness of our own hearts in hopes that God will meet us there. Um, and, and we believe that in, in doing so, not only do we learn something about ourselves, but most importantly, we learn something about who God is in the person of Jesus. Uh, and, and so that's our, that's our prayer for you. Uh, and Jesus, would you use this customary observance of the church to reveal to us something of, of who you are. <clears throat> My friend uh, Andy Ayat uh, and I uh, spent four summers working at Camp Timberlake together when I was in college and then the years uh, following college. And actually Andy came to be at camp my second summer. And he was one of the, uh, th- there were some, some App State faithful who spent summers working at camp. And I always felt like we should have been put on uh, payroll uh, of admissions because we just continued to convince people that they should transfer from their, their first college of, you know, their first choice to Appalachian State. Andy was a Clemson guy through and through, uh, but we convinced him to transfer uh, to Appalachian State. And so he, uh, like so many other people that we work with, worked with, moved to Boone. Um, Andy was a climber uh, like myself. Now I just endeavor to climb. I'll only climb things I know I can climb. Uh, at that time, I, I was maybe a little riskier in the things that I would try, um, but we, my second senior year of um, college, we, um, we had this great uh, idea one clear fall night. We thought that we should go um, up to Ship Rock on the parkway and do a route by moonlight, and, and like you can, you, can, you can boulder by headlamp and, and by lamp light, but in order to do like a full route, we felt like we, we really need the light of the full moon, and we knew it was going to be a full moon, and we thought this is going to be amazing, and and this was before the time of apps where you knew when the moon was going to be where in the sky and, and the direction, you know, like where the moonlight was going to fall. We just assumed uh, that the moonlight would fall on the face that we wanted to climb. And so at 1030, we went and parked our car and did like the, you know, couple mile hike up and <clears throat> we get up there and it's very dark. And, and the moon was not where we needed it to be. And so we thought, we'll just wait. I mean, eventually it's, it has to make its trek across the sky and shine where we wanted it to shine, where we needed it to shine. And so uh, it was a little windy, it was a little exposed where we were, so we went and found a spot in the trees and set our backs against the rock and just waited, just waited in the darkness for light to come. 
And we tried turning our headlamps on, and we realized that those, that light was insufficient, like it was finite, and actually what it did was it, it drew attention to us, you know, for any bears or mountain lions or murderers that might be out there, <laughs> drew attention to us, and, and it also just created like this darkness we could not see into, and so we turned our headlamps off and just sat in the cover of darkness, and the darkness at first began, uh, you know, felt kind of comfortable. But then it became completely disorienting. We realized, like, we, we, don't, we can't even really understand what is happening in the world around us. We began to see things that, we, that weren't there. We began to hear things that were attached to those things that we thought we were seeing that weren't there. And, and at one point, we were convinced that we heard voices. And at another point, Andy said, did you see that guy over there? And I'm like, dude, you're freaking me out. What are you talking about? And he's like, no, never mind. It's just a tree. And I'm like... that. That tree didn't just appear like it's been there the whole time. Why now is it a guy standing there in the darkness? So we, we found ourselves completely disoriented and, and like to this point where not only was the darkness beginning to affect our perception of the world around us, but the darkness was beginning to affect like what was happening inside of us and beginning to affect like what was going on in our hearts. And, and eventually we, I mean, I wish I could tell you that eventually like the moonlight came and shone where we needed to and, and we climbed. We didn't. Um, we abandoned the plan. Uh, and, and maybe the moon eventually shone on that rock, but we were not there to see it um, because we, we, were, we were waiting for that light to come and, and we couldn't wait any longer. We, we just had to leave. And, and so we tucked our tails and hiked or maybe ran back to our cars um, so as not to succumb to uh, the darkness that was there. The story of God's people is of a people who for generations waited for light to come. And, and while it's easier for us to read the gospel accounts especially, but, but then if you were to draw the lens back a little bit and look at the overarching narrative of Scripture, it's, it's easy for us to look and, and say those people were waiting for light to come and they didn't recognize the light when it did come. If we're honest with ourselves, then we are those people. We are, we are desperate for light to come. And, and, and what we see in our passage this morning is that the light came. The light has come in the person of Jesus. And yet the people who were so desperately waiting for it did not recognize it in their midst. And I wonder if that's us. We are desperate for light to break forth in this world because as Ben said, the world, the darkness is maybe more apparent now than it ever has been. And, and it's easy for us to look at the darkness that's in the world and say we need for light to come into that, for light to break into that darkness. <clears throat> and I think sometimes that's more comfortable for us to do than, than to be willing to examine the darkness that might exist in each of us. And say, you know what, I'm, I'm actually desperate for the light to break in to the darkness either that I try to hide myself in or, or that I try to hide things about me in so no one sees them. There's a, darkness, there's a light that that darkness cannot stand against and his name is Jesus. Our scripture for this morning is one verse. John chapter 8 verse 12. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. This is the simple, straightforward, 
invitation, powerful word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. These I am statements that John records in his gospel are significant. They are important for us because they reveal to us, as they did to the people who heard them, something about who Jesus is. And, and that, that is why we've gravitated uh, to this for our series uh, through, through the season of Lent. How can we come to a deeper understanding of who God is or who Jesus is? As the one who is fully man and fully God, the one who is Emmanuel, God with us, God who put on flesh and walked among us. The I am statements of Jesus don't just reveal something to us of who Jesus is, they also reveal something to us of who we are, or more importantly, reveal to us something of the need that we have. So last week, we looked at Jesus' statement, I am the bread of life. It doesn't just tell us something about Jesus, but it, it, it may be caused to question or makes us, uh, invites us to, to realize that maybe there is a hunger within each of us that only Jesus can satisfy. I am the bread of life is an invitation for us to find satisfaction in Jesus, in Jesus alone. It doesn't mean that things of this world won't fulfill us, but, but they will ultimately not satisfy us. So what we hope to do is to situate, as John did, each of these I am statements in the context of when Jesus said this and why that would have been so significant in that moment. Jesus, <clears throat> at this point, is like the rest of God's people in Jerusalem at that time at the festival of the tabernacles. And the festival of the tabernacles, if you look at the, the calendar year, this would have, uh, this would have been the, the, the last or the final of the, the festivals. It began with Passover uh, and, and then the festival or feast of the tabernacles. This one just came to be known as the feast. Um, the feast of the tabernacles was the final, uh, you know, for us, uh, like in, in the you know, in the calendar year, um, like Pentecost, the birth of the church, season of the church, uh, and then we remember, you know, Jesus, uh, Christ the King Sunday, that Jesus is, is Lord, that Jesus has ascended, He will return, and then we begin again in the season of Advent, right? So, in the same way, the people of God ordered their, their year this way because in Leviticus, God told them, these are the festivals that you will celebrate over the course of the year. So for them, this was something, this was uh, customary, this was uh, something that they would have done as the people of God. This was one of three of the festivals in which the people were required to travel to Jerusalem. So this was known as a pilgrimage festival for the people of God. And in this festival, one of the things that they did, this was... Um, called um, Sukkot, or the, the festival of, of the tabernacles, or booths. And over the course of this festival, the people remembered, and even um, faithful Jewish people today still um, erect temporary shelters, um, as they would have done then, because what they are invited to remember is that as God led them in the wilderness after they left Egypt, they lived in temporary shelters. They did not have a place to call their own yet. God was leading them to that place. And so they, every year, would erect these temporary shelters or these booths to remember God's faithfulness to them in the wilderness. There are two other significant things about this, uh, about this festival. Uh, one was that the people lit 
uh, or, or the priests lit lamps. And these lamps were like 75 feet tall. They, each of them held like 65 gallons of oil. And so these lamps were lit by the, the, the priests. And when they were lit in the evening, they didn't just illuminate the temple, but they illuminated the city around it. Right, so this bright light that, that went out. Imagine, if you would, the, the, the light reflecting and shining off of the stone that was the, the temple and the city of Jerusalem and how it would have just been like a beacon for people who would have been outside of the city looking in. And so they lit these giant lamps in order for the, the people to remember and reflect on the fact that in the pillar of fire, God had led the people in the wilderness. Jesus stands up in the court of women, which would have been the most populated part of the temple, like the most people would have been in in that part of the temple. And Jesus stands up with the light of these gigantic lamps shining and makes this statement. I am the light of the world. Whoever comes to me will never walk in darkness. There's a chapter in the Mishnah, which is the, like the early writings based on the Old Testament. And this was written in, in like the, the first, second century. And, and these were writings that said this is what it looks like to live faithfully as God's people. And there's a chapter in there on the Feast of the Tabernacles. And it provides this lavish description of this ceremony and and explains that whoever has not seen these things, whoever has not seen these lamps lit has never seen a wonder before in their life. So in the in the face of this the backdrop is this magnificent moment in the calendar year inviting the people to remember their history but also look forward in anticipation to God who would come and make his dwelling among us. Jesus stands up and says, I am the light of the world. And in doing that, Jesus isn't just calling attention to himself. Jesus is situating himself in the history of God's people in such a way that these words would have meant something to them. If you go back to Isaiah chapter 60. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord rises upon you. See, darkness covers the earth, and thick darkness is over the peoples, but the Lord rises upon you, and His glory appears over you. Nations will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your dawn. That's verses 1 through 3, but then if you go to Isaiah 60, verse 19, the sun will will no more be your light by day, nor will the brightness of the moon shine on you, for the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. This was written in anticipation of the coming Messiah. This was written in anticipation of God coming to dwell among his people. And so in Jesus making this statement, I am the light of the world, Jesus is revealing himself to be God's Messiah. He is revealing himself to be the one who the people had waited for. And he does it with the backdrop of these magnificent lamps as if to say, The light of these lamps is finite. It only carries a limited distance. And as much oil as there is in these lamps, eventually these lamps will go out. 
But I am a light that will never go out. I am a light that darkness will never overcome. In waiting for God's Messiah and the Feast of Tabernacles and waiting for the Messiah to come and make His dwelling among the people, Jesus makes this statement, I am the light of the world. I am the one who was long awaited. The way that John orders his gospel situates Jesus as the one who was and is and is to come. Situates Jesus as God in the flesh, as God who came to walk among us. Situates Jesus as the Messiah. In John chapter 1, verse 14, the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us, tabernacled with us in the person of Christ. Now, what we would expect for these people for whom, for generations, they have been celebrating these festivals remembering what God had done, looking forward in anticipation to what God was going to do in sending the Messiah and sending the one who would come and be the rescue for God's people, we would expect that in this moment, in Jesus making this statement, they would all rush to him and say, we, we are so thankful, we've been waiting. Our parents told us about you. Our grandparents told us about you. Their grandparents told, like for generations, we've been waiting for this thing to happen. We cannot believe that in our lifetime, we are seeing the arrival of God's Messiah our Redeemer, our Rescuer. That's not what happened. The religious leaders, the ones who were tasked with inviting the people to continue to remember, to continue to be faithful in anticipation, to inviting the people to continue to remember this is the way that you live as set apart, this is the way that you live, that this is how, what it looks like to be God's people. They heard Jesus make this statement And it was like a line being drawn in the sand. They were at odds with Jesus because he was not the kind of Messiah that they expected. He was not light in the way that they thought light should come. Their understanding of the Messiah fit in a box of their own making. And yet here standing before them is the light of the world. And what we would see if you go on and continue in chapter 8 is this great debate. Well, what, what, how is this a valid testimony? By what authority are you able to make this statement? Just this back and forth and Jesus has an answer for every argument that they make. And yet it seems like with each response they just become more and more furious. Because their hearts are darkened. And yet the light is standing before them making himself known. And I think it forces us to to wrestle with that in our own lives. You see, we we all have this, this darkness within us. Paul picks up on it. John uh, picks up on it in, in his letter to uh, to the churches in first John chapter one Beginning with verse 5, this is the message we have heard from him and declare to you, God is light, in him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not 
live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. We deceive ourselves. We allow the world to deceive us and convince us that whatever darkness may be in us, maybe is not really dark because it's not as dark as the darkness that we see in other people and like to call attention to. Colossians chapter 1, verse 13, For He has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son He loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 8, For you were once darkness, but now you are light, and the Lord live as children of light. The reality of darkness is all around us. It's the reality of the darkness within us that we have a hard time dealing with. Sometimes the darkness can feel comfortable to us. Right? If we if we feel like there's some things about our lives that we don't want people to see, we feel like there's some things about our lives that we're not proud of, that we feel like, yeah, I, I mean, I, I probably should talk to someone about this, but it's probably best if, if we just leave that alone and just pretend like that's not there, then darkness is a good place to stick that, you know, and, and hide it away. I, I mean, I, I can remember, you know, as a child, there was something that, that, that I did that I knew I shouldn't have done. The response was to go and do what? Hide. As long as I'm not found, as long as I'm not seen, as long as I, I, I close my eyes, I can't see you so you can't see me. I've created this darkness in which I get to live right now and I'm protected in it. Then, then the darkness can, can feel comfortable. And so we have this weird relationship with darkness. Sometimes it is a comfort to us. Other times we're terrified of it. We might be terrified of the darkness in our lives and so we just ignore it. We just pretend like it's not there. And we try to focus so much on the places that seem light and that seem good and, and maybe even work to try to create a light for ourselves that we hope will somehow outshine the darkness that is there that we are ignoring. And yet held up against the light of Christ and the light of who Jesus is, we realize that any light that we offer, any light that we try, try to create is, is finite. Its reach only goes so far. And eventually, the darkness within us, the darkness that we hide away in our hearts, there are moments when it comes out. We might call those moments of frustration. We might call those moments of desperation. The moment in which you react to something that someone said or react to something that someone has done or your moment of escape, whatever that escape may be, is into a place of darkness. And, and rather than being ashamed of that, because I, I think it's difficult for us to find healing in that, it, it affects our ability to, to find and have community with other people. Rather than being ashamed of that, what if, what if we acknowledged it and said, you know what, it's actually the thing that kind of levels the playing field. It's something we all deal with. It's something that affects every single one of us. And yet it doesn't have to define us. It's not meant to define who we are. 
Instead, we are invited to allow this light that has come into the world in the person of Jesus to begin to define who we are. And what we, what we understand, what we see of this light from Scripture is that it does a few things. One, it drives away darkness. Darkness can never overcome light. Light will always drive out darkness. So to, be, to begin to allow and even to ask, and even as we said a moment ago, to just speak the name of Jesus over these places in our lives that feel dark. But, but to begin to invite Christ to come in and say, you know what, I, I, like there's some stuff in me that I'm not proud of. Would you begin to drive that out? So we understand that the light that has come into the world, the light that we are invited to receive into our lives will drive out darkness. Part of the way that, that Christ does this is that light will reveal things that are hidden. Right? If we, by we I mean me, if I go into the crawl space under our house, which is, you know, we treat it like an attic, only it's under our house, so it's full of stuff. And there's only two light bulbs, one at either end of the, the, the crawl space. And it's more like a, I don't have to crawl, like I can stoop over in there. But, but if I go down there looking for something, those two little light bulbs are inadequate for the thing that I am, you know, every, I, I, unless the thing is right beneath the light bulb, I cannot find it. And so I have to take another light with me. It exposes what is in the dark. It exposes what hides in the shadows. And, and that would be, it feels like a very risky prayer for us to pray. And at the same time, such an opportunity for us to say, Jesus, would you reveal to me the things in my life that are darkness, the things in my life that I try to hide away? Would you just allow your light to come in so that I can begin to recognize those things for what they are. Because as long as we continue to live in this you know, comparison to other people, then what we see is dark in someone else. We say, well, as long as I don't have that thing in my life, I'm, I'm probably doing okay. And, and yet it's not, we're not meant to measure ourselves by other people. We're meant to measure ourselves by the light of Christ. And so to invite that light to come in and, and reveal those things that are hidden and, and once we've allowed that to happen, then we're left with, us. okay, you've exposed the things that are hidden. We're, we're driving out the places that are dark. Now what? Light reveals the way to go. Psalm 119, thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. In that passage in uh, Hebrews chapter 4 that's a part of the prayer that I pray before we open God's word every time. There's, there's nothing hidden that will not be revealed. There's nothing hidden that God cannot see. And so not only does God reveal those places within us, but God in his word and through the example of Jesus and those who have gone before us reveals to us the way in which we walk. And so then light ceases to be just this idea. And, and darkness ceases to be just this, this idea, this thing that's meant to represent something else in our lives. But it actually becomes the means by which we learn to live faithfully as followers of Jesus. Because when I hold whatever darkness may be in me, 
or whatever darkness exists in this world up to the word of God and the word that, have, that has become flesh in the person of Jesus, then I begin to see, hey, maybe the way that I was walking is not the best way to walk. Maybe there's a new way to walk. And the way that I learned to walk in this way is by following in the footsteps of Jesus. You've heard me use this example before, but uh, Will Willimon, who who is just, I, in my opinion, one of our great modern day theologians, and and has a deep love and has been connected to the United Methodist Church for probably his entire life. But in one of the books that he's written, he he talks about a a student. He used to be um, at Duke University, but he talks or Duke Divinity School. He talks about a student who comes to see him, and he says, "You know what, I." Look, I don't know. I don't know about this whole Christianity thing. Like, I don't know if I can believe the virgin birth and and the whole creation. I, I just, like, I I'm not sure I believe that. And Willimon says that he just kind of smiled, sat in his chair, and smiled at the student, and and said, you know what? Like, that's not the hardest thing we're going to ask you to believe. We're going to ask you to to love your enemies. We're going to ask you to forgive those who hurt you. We're going to ask you to turn the other cheek. We're going to ask you to pray for those who persecute you. The example that Jesus gives is meant to be a light unto our path. It's meant to light the way in which we are invited to walk, a way that is life-giving, not that steals life from us, a way that also offers life and light to those around us, not because it's a light that we've manufactured and that we hope we can give to other people, but a light that is based on something that existed before us, is present with us, and inhabits the very core of who we are in the person of Jesus. And that ours would become a story like the man that we see who encounters Jesus in John chapter 9. As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, Jesus said, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, here he says again, I am the light of the world. After saying this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means scent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, Isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, No, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. How then were your eyes open, they asked. He replied, the man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash, so I went and washed, and then I could see. Where is this man, they asked him. I don't know. So then they bring him to the Pharisees, and the Pharisees are grilling him. Second time they summoned the man who had been blind. Give glory to God by telling the truth. They said, we know this man is a sinner. They're Referring to Jesus, and the man replies, whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. This man, Jesus, the light of the world, 
has given me light that I've never known. I used to live in darkness, but now there's light. Now I can see. I don't know how he did it. I don't know why he chose to do it. But all I know is that my world was darkness, and now I am no longer living in that darkness. This is the testimony of a man born blind. It's the testimony of all who have come to know Jesus. I don't know how he did it. I don't know how it is that the the cross pays the penalty for my sins. I don't know how it is that now I'm able to live in right relationship with God. But what I do know is that I once was blind, but now I see. There once was darkness, but now I am able to live and to walk in the light of Christ. For me, and and gosh, I wish we had time because all of us, or so many of us, I feel like could say, this is my story, right? And I could have said that last week about the bread of life. There are so many things that I reached out for and I tried to find that would satisfy me, and I found that there is only one, and his name is Jesus. Mine was a life in which darkness had become comfortable, And by the grace of God, Jesus has come in and has blown up that darkness and has invited me to walk in his light, in fellowship with him. And and, in my life, I feel like the psalmist in Psalm 139. Even if I rise on the wings of the dawn, you are there. If I settle on the far side of the sea, you are there. If I try to hide myself in darkness, even that darkness is as light to you. There is nowhere that I can go that you are not. Friends, may you hear in these words of Jesus, I am the light of the world, an invitation to examine the limit of those things that you seek to be light in your life. May you hear in those words of Jesus an invitation to examine in your own life those places that may be dark, And may you hear in the words of Jesus an invitation to follow him. Because it's not just that Jesus is this light that is outside of us. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Inherent in this statement that Jesus makes is an invitation to discipleship. It's an invitation to follow him. It's an invitation to walk with him. It's an invitation to allow him to blow up whatever small understanding you have of what it means to be a Christ follower, whatever small understanding you have of religion, to allow him the ability to come into that and to turn it upside down and to say it's so much more than this. It's about life like you've never known it. It's about a life of freedom and fullness. It's about a life in which you're able to acknowledge the darkness and say, you know, but that darkness doesn't have the final say because I know the light of this world and his name is Jesus. And then we're invited to take that light to the world around us. In the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus says, you are the light of the world, talking to his followers. It doesn't do any good to light a lamp and hide it under a bushel because, or a basket then that light serves no purpose for the environment around it. Instead, you're to be like a city on a hill. You're to be be a light that exposes the darkness, a light that is willing to walk into dark places. 
the Dead Sea Society. Those were the people that were responsible for recording and writing the, the Dead Sea Scrolls thousands of years ago. Understood that there was a certain way to live as the people of God. And conversely, understood that the world was a dark place, but it was a place that they so wanted to separate themselves from that they dwelt in caves. They called themselves the sons of light, and yet that light they hid in caves where it was safe and where it was comfortable. When the light of Jesus invades our hearts, it's not meant for us to just keep and tuck away and say, this is my pretty little light, and I want to take it out when it's dark, and I want to look at it and see how it lights this little area around me. That we are then meant to take that light into the darkness around us, trusting that the darkness will not overcome it. The darkness does not have the final say. We're not meant to hide it away in a cave because the world is a dark place. We're meant to follow the example of the light of the world who came and walked in the darkness. Exposed it for what it is. But then invited those who participated in it to step into the light. And to know life like they've never known. Friends, that's the invitation. We would hear in Jesus, I am the light of the world. There is no darkness in you that I cannot overcome. And there's no darkness in this world that I cannot overcome. Would you be people of light? Stand and pray.